0: Hey there, listeners. You are in for a treat today. As amazing as John and I are at the Lame Analogies and Corny Jokes, today's podcast offers a bit of a break from us and introduces our first guest of the season. We were privileged to interview Marwan Fayyad. He began his career as an academic. He's an adjunct professor at the University of St. Andrews, but took a turn toward industry not too long ago and is currently a research lead at Cloudflare. Marwan has a wealth of knowledge that he so generously shares with us in this conversation. This conversation, it was so long, he was so generous with his time as well so that we've broken it down to two different installments. So you'll hear part one of that interview today where we talk about network layers and specifically TCP. Does that sound familiar? Marwan also talks about his work at Cloudflare and what an industry lab looks like. And, oh wait, I don't want to ruin it for you. Marwan says it's so much better. So, without further ado... Sorry for the fake out, but I have a favor to ask. You see, I'm not much of a marketer, and John, will John is an introverted data scientist, so we both stink at creating any kind of of word-of-mouth buzz. If you're enjoying these episodes, would you do one of two things for us? Would you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review? Or would you tell a friend who you think might enjoy the content we're bringing? Bonus points if you do both. We love what we're doing with this podcast and we want to share it. We just don't want to have to tell people ourselves. Okay, now on to the show.
1: Joining us today is Marwan Faid, uh, who is a research lead at uh, Cloudflare and is also an adjunct professor at University of St. Andrews. And he'll be joining us today to talk about his work in networking and also around TCP. So why don't we start off, uh, Marwan, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, background, and your current role.
2: Thanks for having me, John. This is always a a tricky one to answer because my path has been a little bit unconventional. Uh, So currently, I'm a research lead at uh, Cloudflare, which is a network infrastructure company. Uh, I like to tell my colleagues and friends um, and family who know nothing about the network that it it, uh, may very well be the largest, certainly one of the largest um, and most important uh, organizations on the internet that no one has ever heard of. In so much as uh, the estimates I'm told are 10 plus percent of uh, the internet traffic at some point flows through Cloudflare boxes. Uh, uh, tends, it's a it's a great organization. They tend to be fairly transparent uh, about the things that they do. The reason this is important to me is because uh, I was uh, an academic professor at the University of St Andrews, as you said, uh, just before joining Cloudflare and. Uh, being a part of an industry lab was in no way, shape, or form part of the plan. Uh, I was going to be the lifelong academic, collaborate where possible, and all of the rest. And in debating what to do for a sabbatical, there was an opportunity that materialized at Cloudflare that started conversations, and I was eventually convinced to make the jump. And here I am.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. So when you so on the sabbatical, as you were taking a break from the, the academic work, you... Uh, is it fair to say you, you sort of dipped your toe into industry and then that kind of led to, to new opportunities?
2: Uh, sometimes that's the way it can happen. Oftentimes uh, when we try and organize sabbaticals, you have to think ahead a little bit. So this is um, depending on, on it's one every seventh semester in the UK, North America and other places. The norm is one every seven years. You become eligible for these things. They're meant to give you a, a break from the teaching and the administrative obligations to revisit research plan the next few years. So you want to be really effective about that time that you take, and uh, you end up doing a little bit of look ahead and saying, I have that uh, opportunity coming up, what am I going to do with it? Mm-hmm. And in that search, uh, Cloudflare came up. It, it, one, of the, one of the additional reasons it was appealing is because as an academic, uh, I co-founded a Community Broadband ISP with some brilliant people, let me say. Uh, one of the things that is it was a difficult choice as an academic because it was very much on the ground type work. So you wouldn't get the normal papers and grants out of it. But at the same time, I felt it could be the um, only opportunity I would have in my career to have a direct impact on people's lives. So unlike the biotech and all of these people, you know, my sister, for example, she works in health science. She works with in, uh, with people all the time. Computer scientist and networking, doesn't really have that opportunity. So uh, it was something I decided to do and I'm quite happy I did. It took me in some really interesting directions. Maybe we'll end up talking about some of those.
1: Yeah, I, I can uh, s- sympathize with that that sentiment. There was, um, uh, after they were, or, or during my postdoc, I uh, was getting a little bit of that itch of, you know, I, I've been doing experiments and, you know, testing theory uh, and I was, uh, kind of eager to see, you know, how would this hold up in the real world? Uh, How could I apply it? And, uh, and I think, you know, as we're talking, I think that's an interesting uh, option that, you know, the question usually comes up when, when, when students are in grad school, um, should I go into industry or should I go into academia? And it's, it's not really an exclusive uh, uh, choice, right? As you say, you can be in academia and have these opportunities like during sabbaticals and, and other other ways to uh, interact with industry and, and vice versa.
2: Indeed, I'm actually, so I take a, an even stronger position, uh, which is before, before I take on any PhD students or did in my former life, or uh, at St. Andrews, I ran the graduate school program. So I would process the PhD applications and so on. And I feel it's very important to be with any, uh, up with anyone who's about to engage in a PhD and make clear the likelihood of an academic job after graduation is very small because the number of people graduating with PhDs, while it is a fraction of a fraction of the population, uh, the number of positions is a fraction of a fraction of the number of PhDs graduating. So uh, if one is going to spend three to six years of their lives pursuing this thing that they love so much, they need to be open to the possibilities afterwards. That's really important.
1: Can you talk to us a little bit how your your day to day looks like, and um, as as much as that actually bridges between industry and academia, that would be interesting also to to see.
2: Yeah, one of the this is actually this is a, I suppose this is one of the interesting things. So in my current role, senior researcher, research lead at Cloudflare, uh, there are a couple of things. Uh, well, there are a number of things that I do. On a day-to-day basis, I like to think that there, I prioritize a few things above all else. One is that's supporting team members in whatever way is necessary to enable them to be productive in their research endeavors and, crucially, to feel like they're, they're contributing somehow to research in a Cloudflare environment. And there are many people who, who different talents, different skills across the team. So for one person, it might be writing publications, manuscripts for peer review. For another person, it might be building a program, writing a source code that supports a new standard. The, the list of things that we do as a, an organization within an organization varies. And uh, what I'd like to think that I bring to the table is some notion of experience and broad view thinking. Part of that, of course, is collaborating with uh, outside organizations. So. We are a fairly new outfit research endeavor inside of CloudFlare, but it's a high priority to collaborate with research institutions, both in universities, government labs, and the rest. Uh, After all, the internet is supposed to be an open infrastructure for everybody to use, and so the things that we are most interested in are those things that benefit everyone.
0: With the research, are there end goals particularly in mind? Does Cloudflare have specific goals that they're trying to achieve and they're implementing or having folks do research on those topics? Or is it more wide open, letting people pursue their interests and if something comes of it that's useful, we'll we'll use it?
2: Oh, this is the classic, the classic, uh, what is an industry lab story, uh, which I know has received quite a bit of attention in the last 10 or 15 years. So there is, historically, if you look in the past, names like AT&T or sorry, Bell Labs or Xerox Park, uh, these are the kinds of places when the names are, are mentioned in conversation, we tend to think of these sort of just blue sky, do whatever you want type, and something magical will happen. And, and true to form, a lot of magical things did happen, many of which were accidents, So the graphical user interface that we're all familiar with, the point and click environments, uh, Ethernet, these are all sort of happy accidents that fell out of these environments. Over the course of the 80s and 90s, that space to investigate, just to follow curiosity, diminished in the private sector. And it was thought that it would pick up in the university space. I suppose there's some truth to these and you know, a lot of this is personal opinion, um, but increasingly what you see in industry labs is uh, I think in a contemporary age, the more successful ones, the researchers still have the freedom to pursue things out of interest, but they have to be driven by some form of necessity or benefit for the organization. I think. So. So within Cloudflare, for us, for a team, what that means is we tend to um, prioritize things to do with security and privacy of the participants of the internet and the internet itself. Uh, We've started to expand a little bit into the networking domain, so keeping the network reliable, resilient, Um, and then there are other natural extensions from there, but historically, so TLS 1.3, for example, is fairly ubiquitous these days on online and I would like to think, I think I'm safe saying so because I've seen the measurement studies to support it and it's before my arrival. Cloudflare had a very, very big hand in pushing the TLS 1.3 protocol. Uh, Some of the co-authors of the standard of the draft uh, that has become a a request for comments, they are Cloudflare people.
1: Could you uh, just I don't mean to interrupt for but what is um, TLS or what's the... TLS 1.3. Oh,
2: cardinal mistake. I'm sorry I made it. Yes. So uh, the internet is this magical, mythical beast in which we have separated out features and functions into what we call layers. So this is the uh, protocol stack is how people tend to refer to it. There are a couple of different versions of this stack depending on whether you reference the model that comes from the uh, OSI or um, the standard internet. But really what it fundamentally comes down to is at the bottom layer is the things that are close to the physical layer. This is the layer where one device talks immediately with its neighbor, the one that it's directly connected to. This is physical and data link. And then above that layer, you have uh, the routing what's called the network layer. And this place is responsible for finding a path from one device to another if the, if the path exists, and then getting the data, uh, forwarding the data along that path from the source to the destination. And then above that layer, you have what's called the transport layer. Uh, this is where we think about uh, what we refer to as end-to-end services. So is it a fire off and forget? Or do I want some assurance that if I fire it off, it's going to get to the destination? And if it doesn't get to the destination, then somehow I know about it. Um, At the very, very top layer, there's the application layer. So this tends to be things that people are familiar with, like HTTP, I believe you did an episode recently about IMAP, mail protocol. Uh, DNS, even though it's regarded, so this is the domain name system, even though uh, DNS is regarded as being a fundamental part of the Internet's day-to-day functioning, the protocol itself is actually regarded as an application layer protocol because nothing happens above DNS. But then between the application and transport, there are all these other things that we can do. One of those is ensure secure uh, communication. And TLS, this is transport layer security, is the protocol that provides this on the internet today. So it sits on top of TCP Although increasingly is being integrated with uh, in, in Quick, so they kind of coexist. And what it means is, uh, from that layer TLS and above, everything is encrypted safely, so that no onlookers can actually see what you're doing. There are some corner cases where that has yet to be true, but by and large,
1: awesome. Thank you. That's a that's great. That's a great overview too. I appreciate that. Um So sorry. Yeah, you were, but you were you were saying. Uh, I think I, I mean, kind of interrupted your flow there a little bit.
0: We we're talking about T, TLS research and how Cloudflare.
2: Oh, had... research at Cloudflare, right? Yes. So you have to forgive me. I, I, I used to tell the students one of the reasons I do computer science is because I have it, the worst memory. I've gotten in trouble <laughs> before in my past because by dinner time I had forgotten conversations that I had at lunchtime, and it's genuinely no lack of interest. Well, and and one of the one of the I think the the, the elegant aspects of computer science and many of the sciences certainly mathematics is if you remember the fundamentals then one can fairly quickly reconstruct most of the knowledge that they need uh of course you get better with it with practice so this is why i do things um yeah so the research at cloudflare fundamentally uh security protocols the last little while we've been working on uh, privacy so uh The week before this is being recorded, Cloudflare had this sort of privacy and compliance week of announcements and discussions. And uh, three of the uh, higher profile, as it turns out, announcements came from the research side. And one of those was uh, called ODO, or Oblivious DNS over HTTPS. I'm not sure if if that's something that I should raise here, if you want to. It's a way of providing DNS service with two nice features. One is that onlookers ha- are unable to see what it is that you're after, what your query is for. So DNS is the thing that translates a name to an address. So a example.com to a series of, of numbers and digits that's the, that the internet understands. So DOH, so DNS over HTTPS, or DNS over TLS. These two protocols secure DNS messages from onlookers, from third parties. One of the criticisms has been, however, that because it's a new protocol and there's no way to discover DNS resolvers, the services, that it has had the consequence of concentrating DNS traffic into a very small number of large service providers, namely Cloudflare, public DNS, uh, the 1.1 service, Google's uh, 8.8, Quad9, so that's 9.9.9. And so they see the vast majority of the DNS over HTTPS traffic. And so one criticism is, well, look, y- you may have policies to assure people their privacy and be transparent about what you do or don't do with the data, but how can anyone really know for sure? So this announcement from last week from the research team, of Livius DNS over HTTPS, or ODO as it were, injects a proxy in the middle of of this DNS exchange. So in such a way that the the proxy in the middle sees the endpoints, sort of knows knows the IP address or the identity of the client making the request and the resolver that's satisfying the request. But they cannot see the request itself because it's encrypted, additionally encrypted. And then the target resolver sees the request, but only sees the identity of the proxy and so nothing is known about the client or the individual uh, that is actually making the request and this was a much bigger deal than we anticipated it being given the amount of press that it got so uh, these are the sorts of things that we tend to be interested in things that are genuinely good for the whole internet
1: with regard to privacy so this um, this would also potentially protect internet users from, I guess, from, from even their ISPs, um, to a degree.
2: This was one of the big sources of tension actually when, so when DOH was first released, uh, Comcast was one of the biggest voices in this domain and a few governments as well. And the criticism was, look, we, we no longer see what our home broadband users, for example, as an ISP, uh, Are trying to do so their queries no longer come to us we don't resolve them and we can't take action on them so in the UK for example uh, ISPs the internet service providers are required to filter certain DNS requests or filter DNS requests based on certain content and so the ISPs suddenly lose that ability now we we can it's it's not so much that DOH has taken this away it's much more that DOH rolled out before, uh, DOH has yet to to roll out widely. So there's nothing to prevent a Comcast or British Telecom or anyone else from rolling out this service. But one of the problems that's associated with this is even if they did roll it out, there's no technical way to set up the consumer to use that ISP. There's no discovery service the way that there is. with normal DNS, mm. uh, and there are there are groups that are trying to resolve this, but in the ODO case, it doesn't change where the resolver sits. So ODO has this nice property where you can pick your proxy, and you can pick your target resolver. So all it does is it hides identity. It doesn't restrict who the result where the resolver can sit.
1: Yeah, I can I can imagine that that tension between you know user privacy and uh various regulations or you know regulatory policies that you want to enact uh, especially if yeah like uh, if if you want to track down stuff that's happening on i guess on the dark web right that's like it that becomes a little bit more challenging i suppose
2: you know so so these dark web type of examples they're the ones that come up again and again the scaremongering and um i try to stay away from those yeah so I prefer to be a little bit pragmatic and, and hopefully optimistic, which is I think it's it's important to acknowledge how to get there. I think is a, it's a much bigger problem than than me or any individual can solve. But we need to acknowledge that that there are regional constraints or demands, there are legislation, there are all kinds of so what what's reasonable in one part of the world will will be perceived differently in another part of the world. I fundamentally believe, the internet uh, is the last place where these kinds of decisions should be made. But we could argue that it's important for the internet somehow to respect these decisions. There, some countries have hate laws and there are places on the internet that are very clearly defined as as, as violating uh, those rules. And I suppose there needs to be a way, I can acknowledge that there should be a way to enforce these types of rules if if somebody's able to provide them. DNS is one way that this has typically happened in the past. I I'm, don't wanna sit here as, a, as an individual, even as a Cloudflare employee and say that that's a good thing, but I can acknowledge that DNS is often where this happens.
0: Some of my classmates at, in my CS program are interested in research. And one of the things we get stuck with is what does that even look like, like this abstract concept of research? but when it comes down to it, where does an idea come from? how do you what does it look like to implement research?
2: wow this is a this is an interesting broad discussion. Okay, so in general terms, I think there there are a few rules that uh, we try to impart on people who are who are are going down the stream so the, the first thing i want I think that's really, really important to point out is. Research is a label tends to be overloaded. So I, when I say research, I will view that label as being different than if I was in a conversation with somebody who's on the marketing side, for example, and they're thinking of what does the market look like? They want to understand something about the environment. On my side of the fence, on, on, on the sort of what we'll call what, a peer review or community consensus side of the fence, Research tends to be engaged with advancing the human body of knowledge, and maybe that's the distinction. So there are research methods, certainly uh, good ways to go about finding the answer to a question, whether it advances, advances human knowledge or not. So all research, there can be good research and bad research, but good research, I think, looks the same in any domain. The separation tends to be, what's the target? And, f- and for for us, on the sort of, at the forefront side, we genuinely wanna add something, we wanna know something that we didn't know before, or understand something that we didn't understand before. And that tends to be the the, the motivation for it. But then the question is, what does it look like when you pursue it? I think the the first rule is to be modest. Humility here matters a lot. So there's this old notion, I believe people attribute this to Albert Einstein, even though if I recall, Albert Einstein actually did not say this, which is it's important to stand on the shoulders of giants. Anyone wants to correct me on that one, please feel free. But when students or anyone for that matter, in our group as well comes up with an idea, there's a two-step process to decide whether it's something that's worth pursuing. Setting aside all of the incentives, whether it's the right fit, all of that sort of thing. Just the concentrating on the idea itself. So the first rule is, If you have an idea, you must assume that somebody else had the idea before you, okay? Because if anyone that has the idea, likely has the idea as a a consequence of earlier ideas, so they, and I can tell you a story, actually in my own training, I think that I reflect on quite a bit when I think about this. So it's important to go looking for that, not to understand if somebody had the idea, but actually look for it with the firm belief that the idea exists, okay? And, and that, I think that difference in perspective actually changes the fervor with which you go looking for the answer to that question or, or, or address that concern. If after a concerted effort, there's no evidence that somebody had the idea before you, that leads you into step two, which is continue to assume that somebody had the idea, but you see no evidence of it because there are good reasons it was never brought to bear it was too expensive, it was too complex, there were too many organizations required to make it happen, whatever wasn't, you know, something was missing, or there was some barrier to prevent that idea from being publicly known, okay? Only after that point where you can identify why if somebody had the idea it hadn't appeared before now and you've convinced yourself that those barriers no longer exist, then you would stop, then we say, go ahead and, and look for them. Um, so these tend to be the guiding principles when we pursue our research in general. If, if you want, I'm happy to come back to the story, which was when I was studying my PhD, my super at the, supervisor at the time, he and I have now become uh, fast friends, I remember trying to figure out what it is that I wanted to to work on. Of course, this is in the networking space. And I, and I had an epiphany over a weekend, having done some grocery shopping. I, I show up at his office Monday morning, had coffee. And, and I said, well, I suppose this is public information, who my supervisors are. So I said, John, I've got this great idea. You know, when you go to a McDonald's or a grocery store with a friend you, and you split up and you wait in two lines or two queues, and then the first person to get to the, to the get service first, the other person just comes along and joins that person, right, so you've kind of, somehow you are reducing the time on average that you have to spend waiting in line. Well, the network fundamentally, people know about routers and switches, these are all familiar, but routers and switches are loaded with what we call buffers. So the internet is a store and forward infrastructure, which means when I send a packet of information That packet must be received in its entirety at a router or a switch before it is forwarded on to the next hop or the next router or switch. Well, you can imagine in that that storing, information can arrive much faster than it goes out. And so that buffer tends to fill up, which leads to congestion, which is a separate topic we can talk about downstream. But the idea here is, The internet is built in such a way that there are multiple paths to the destination. What if upon receipt of a packet, you could copy that packet and put it into two different buffers destined for two different paths on route to the destination. And as soon as one of those copies is transmitted, the other one is deleted, okay? As a way to get things through the network faster and in a more distributed fashion. And I will, so long as I live, I will never forget this moment. He said to me, do you want the good news or the bad news? And true to form, I think we, we tend to start with the bad so that we can end with the good, at least on the receiving side. So I said, okay, John, give me the bad news first. And he said, it's already been done. And I said, if it's already been done, then what on earth could the good news be? And he said, it was only done six months ago. And he, he, I mean, I can almost hear people listening. What do you mean that that's good news? I just missed the mark, right? Now I have to spend the next couple of years on the new thing. So he said to me something very interesting. He said, the fact that it was only done six months ago means that you're on the right track. And what he meant to say by that was the following. Uh, You learn the foundations and the fundamentals, and then you reason them through and you come up with the next idea to solve the shortcomings of that first set, right? And so the foundations and the fundamentals for a lot of our domain is 20 plus years old, networking domain as much as 40. 50 so so then you get to the next stage and then you realize oh people solved the problem in exactly that way and but there's an open set of problems and then you progress and so the point is my having thought of this thing was only done six months ago what he was trying to impart upon me was that I'm genuinely on the right track so now I am on par with the rest of the community I'm exactly where I need to be and the next idea that I have hopefully will be the one that
1: so you, you found a good starting point for for research. So even though in that line of research, you, like you were saying, you're you're right at the right point, which is exactly yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah. Um, I, I think it was I mean as a supervisor it was something that that was supposed to give me uh, confidence about the way that I was thinking in the direction that I was heading, even though I had sort of missed this thing that had happened recently in the past.
1: Gotcha yeah cuz i i could see that you know a lot of people want to be like um it's it's much more attractive to be you know the pioneer the, the you know breaking ground on like a, a whole new subfield right but uh but a lot of research doesn't doesn't happen there and and like you said earlier it, some of that happens by accident while we're working on other things, it, it kind of happens. so um... it,
2: it, this is all attached to the humility game, right? I, I think mm-hmm. it's important to acknowledge the vast majority and I, I mean the vast majority of research that's out there is incremental, just mm-hmm. you know little tiny steps on top of on top of what was there before. And the funny thing is is now that I'm in the private sector and after having co-founded that ISP with brilliant people, one of the things I realized is, I think by and large the same principles apply if I'm starting a business, right? You, you kind of go through the, assume somebody else has this business idea before you. And if they didn't, there was a reason that they didn't. And so you need to align all your ducks in a row before you would decide to really invest in launching that new business idea. And, and the timing thing as well, you have a business idea, but you figure out that somebody did it just six months before you, it means you're probably in the right place. And the next thing that comes to mind may very well be the thing that that, that lands, so. Even though research tends to be this thing that is distant from most people's minds, the the foundation, like the fundamentals of how we do research are not so different from how we do a lot of new things.
0: That's really interesting. So you mentioned the ISP you started. Let's let's talk about that for a little bit. Tell us a little more about what, what problem you were trying to solve, why you got involved.
2: <laughs> so uh, I'm based in the UK and I was in Scotland at the time. And The UK, just like many countries around the world, had been for at least 10 years promising to solve the rural and remote broadband um, gap. I'm going to call it a gap because it really is one. Whereupon anywhere from 1% to 15% of of the population, certainly in developed countries, is sitting with uh, little to no broadband access. And this is increasingly problematic. I think people fail to realize how I want to step aside. It's it's important to realize how important actually this is to a lot of people. So at one point early, very, very early on when I got into this game, we ran into a community of a hundred people. The only way in or out was by boat or on foot. There were no roads in or out. And they had been told the week before we arrived Uh, to help them set up some network infrastructure. They had been told by the major grocery chains that no longer could they pick up the phone, call the grocery store on the mainland and order food to be delivered on the boat. They had to log on to a website in order to submit the order, except that they had no broadband access. Uh, And increasingly, I find, many people will find this is true. Uh, Governmental services, public services, the basics, just ordering food or or, or goods. If you're not online, you're highly disadvantaged if not cut off completely. Now on a personal level, I will stand up and say, everyone who has promised to solve the problem is very well intentioned. I genuinely believe that. Except that the people who have stood up, you would think are able to solve the problem and have stood up to promise to do so are ill-equipped. The private sector, so your major ISPs, they have to survive. They need a revenue stream. And the economies of scale that that, uh, typically support their models of business and delivery don't exist in these regions. And so as well-intentioned and well-meaning as they might be when they say, we're going to do such and such, I think they're not used to the sort of the the, the cost of investment versus the return, because it doesn't fit with the way that they do things on a day-to-day basis. Uh, governments, similarly well-meaning of course, but they have no expertise. They're completely illiquid, right? I mean, no idea how to deliver the service, and so they feel they have no option but to then um, subsidize the large players to do the job for them. By the way, on a personal level, from personal experience, one of the challenges that comes when there's trying to find new solutions out of government is there's this, uh, there's this old adage from the 50s, no one ever gets fired for hiring IBM. Right. The, the, the idea that certainly back in, you can imagine when IBM was the Microsoft and the Google of the world way back when there was this idea of well, if IBM can't do it, surely no one can do it. And this notion I think prevails in a, in a lot of instances. So when small people like us come along with these really new ideas, much as uh, governments and public infrastructure might want to support them, it's really hard for them to do so because, it's never really been part of the fabric of the way of doing things so in our case what happened was myself and a few other professors and a brilliant network engineer we decided to try and just and have a hand at solving this problem and we went out to a few different communities uh, and taught them just basics of networking helped them set up what i call infrastructure but it's really just a a little dish like a, you know your, your satellite type dishes the little mini ones so one of those Wi-Fi antennas uh, and a couple of routers. Most homes being set up for two to three hundred dollars, and not much more than that for the connectivity of the of the um, region, the village typically itself. And what we learned was, individual communities can set themselves up pretty quickly. There's not a lot of know-how to do this, and 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 even more than that, the people who spent the time to help set up these communities very often would just spin out their own little community businesses. And they became the de facto person, the ISP for the community, people could call them. And they had an interest in the health of this thing in the community because not only did they live there, but it had become a revenue stream. Um, So that was great. But one of the things that, that became apparent fairly quickly is that once a community has its own connectivity, there's this big open question of how the community network connects to the rest of the internet. So this is backhaul, we call it. It's that sort of that next mile. And what was immediately apparent is that backhaul outside of the urban regions is, uh, if it's available at all, and that's a big if, is prohibitively expensive. So 20, 50, 100 people band together and they try and uh, buy that leased line, that connection back to an internet exchange point in an urban region, it's just way too expensive for them to be able to do. So what we decided to do was, uh, was uh, spin out this little organization called Hubs, C-I-C, and it is a not-for-profit and a community co-op, crucially, so that every one of the subscriber networks became members of this backhaul ISP. And what we did was we just took these architectures, these familiar ways of organizing Um, boxes and connectivity on the internet, the internet exchange point, and distributing that over hundreds of square kilometers. I think in the best case, we're about 4,000 square kilometers. Uh, And just, and built this wireless infrastructure, hardware was really cheap. And then uh, that way, all of the communities shared the cost of one and two and five and 10 gig pipes back to the inline points. There were people who were in the middle of nowhere in the UK getting 50 megabits worth of connectivity when in the center of Edinburgh and Glasgow, in Scotland at the time, you'd be lucky to get 15 or 20. We took this to the European Commission. They had, at the time, these broadband award competitions ended up winning out, uh, beating out large incumbents. It was was, um, really fabulous. And to this day, the organization survives. It's evolved into something that's um, much bigger. The point being is there are ways to solve this problem I think if the incumbents just made a little bit of room, and the public infrastructure, the funding, the uh, policy signed, actually allowed for these sort of new nascent ideas to emerge.
1: That's super interesting. That so it uh, and, and and correct me if I'm sort of oversimplifying, but the, but through this co-op by just providing some uh, so a little bit of know-how and uh, you know just a little bit of information and and. know connection to resources uh these community communities could set themselves up for connection and and even like you said which i I find interesting is that it it would even be a boon to the people that are spending time on it so it's not even that the people have to you know sort of pay out of pocket uh, financially or or you know out of sweat equity but like um to, to set up the network but that it would actually be you know potentially a new revenue source there like a new way to, uh, uh, or or it's a built-in incentive to get the community uh, integrated.
2: Yeah, no, uh, so that little community, the the little town, little village that I told you about with no roads in or out, uh, we were asking about population. So for about 20 years, they'd seen their population decline from, I think it was 120, and they were down at 97. And, And in the 12 to 18 months after getting broadband, their population had increased by it was two or three. I mean, and this was a big deal for them because it meant that suddenly these places, if we believe that they're important, uh, are, are, are sustainable in ways that maybe they weren't the day before broadband access was, was uh, turned on, was made available. And it's, it's funny, so it's not an oversimplification at all. I think this is absolutely true. And, and there are two things that come out of this. The first is some volunteer, or, so sharing of knowledge is important. I think that's something on the internet we've grown accustomed to. Some sort of volunteer goodwill effort is fine in the beginning, but at some point fairly early on, people have to start paying for things. So nothing should be free because the things that are free are undervalued. And the trick here was everybody had to put in something, but they're not paying an ISP comes along and says, we've got to dig a hole in the ground and you've got to pay 2,000 or 5,000 units of currency. That's not what we're talking about here. This is, we run out to a shop, we buy an antenna and a box for a total cost of, let's say two or 300 units of currency. We'll help you set it up and install it. And then, you know, so everybody tends to have a stake from that perspective. And and in a lot of instances, yes, it turned out there was that revenue stream within the um, village itself. The and I want to come back to this in a moment. But, but this, so one is is that nothing should be for free. The second thing that's really important here is, interestingly, the biggest barriers were not technical at all. There there were no technical barriers in the end. It was more the biggest barriers were people. Trying to convince uh, someone in the village to take on this role. Or trying to convince the people who were responsible for designing funding schemes to allow for these kinds of corner cases. It was far more often than anything else, the biggest barriers were people-related, not technical, which for me was surprising, I think. So coming back to the earlier point, one of the things which was really, really cool to watch is that where communities set up their own little businesses in-house, even if it was one person, but it sort of a, like it was a community enterprise. So all the revenue from just the local uh, village or the community service, people pay their monthly fee. Uh, some of it goes to paying for the service and everything that's, le- and, and people's time, and then everything that's left over goes into a pot. And in the instances where, where these were set up as community accounts, if you will, what that meant was that there was community funds to improve the infrastructure. So, to move from one wireless standard up to the next wireless standard, Wi Fi standard, uh, that was going to increase the bandwidth. In a couple of cases, and this has been absolutely glorious, there has been enough money in the pot after a couple of years of doing this, maybe uh, let's say three to five, a couple of two or three is maybe a bit too optimistic, where people then brought in diggers and started digging their own fiber to the home. And so, on the west coast of Scotland, in the center of Scotland, and a few other places, there's a, there's a completely different outfit in England, Barn, B4RN, people might have heard of, where, where after some time of, of building up this pot, they don't. no one has to rely on an ISP or an infrastructure provider to come in and build out. They dig their own holes, they lay down their own fiber right to their door, and then it's just a matter of, again, how do we connect our own little fiber network to the rest of the which comes back to this notion of the backhaul ISP. Where does that come from? But it was absolutely beautiful to see villages doing this. Nothing that an individual could have walked in and done on their own.
0: That's really neat. Did you enjoy that? Isn't Marwan great? We'll have the second part of this conversation ready for you in two weeks. In the meantime, check out the show notes for a link to Marwan's profile and his work. Until then.